particular man went to see his priest one day. The priest asked him and said, bless you, my son, how can I help you? The man said, Father, I'm at the end of my rope with my wife. I'm out of options, I don't know which way to turn. The priest, feeling very concerned, said, well, my child, what's the problem? He said, Father, I think my wife's trying to poison me. The priest was shocked. Nothing in seminary had prepared him for this. And he said, surely you can't be serious. I've known your wife since she was a little girl. I performed her baptism as a baby. I watched her grow up. I've performed your wedding. Surely your wife is not trying to poison you. And the man says, well, Father, I'm just as shocked and upset. That's why I'm here. But all I can tell you is uh, my wife, I think, is having an affair with me. I can't prove it, but I think she's cheating on me with a coworker. I know that if something happens to me, she's going to get an incredible life insurance payout. And I know that the Drano's disappearing and I'm not using it. I know that my coffee tastes funny in the mornings. And I know that I've got all these symptoms and I Googled the symptoms and I'm convinced my wife's trying to poison me. The priest was still shocked in disbelief and he said, son, I hope this isn't true. I pray this is not true, but let me help you get to the bottom of this before you call the police and before you maybe make a misunderstanding into something much, much worse. He said, here's what I'll do for you. He said, let me talk to your wife. And he said, I'll ask some questions and I'll kind of fiddle around and I'll get to the bottom of this. He said, I'll talk to her this week and I'll give you a call this time next week. And so sure enough, the next week, the priest calls the man. And he says, Father, tell me what happened. The priest says, well, son, talk to your wife. Spent three hours with her on the phone. Here's my advice to you. Take the poison. <laughs> family life can be killer, can't it? Oh, and sometimes family life might turn you into a killer. Uh, in fact, somebody once asked the wife of Billy Graham, Ruth Graham, they said, Miss Graham, in all your years of marriage to Billy Graham, have you ever thought about divorce? She looked aghast and said, divorce? No. But I thought about murder a lot of times. <laughs> the fact is that um, family life can be dysfunctional sometimes, can't it? And maybe you feel that way about your family. Maybe you feel that way about the family you grew up in. Maybe you look back now as, as an adult, or maybe you're not an adult, and you look at the people you still live with, and you think, man, they're blowing it. Or, or maybe you look back over your family of origin, and you see conflict issues, and communication problems, and unforgiveness, and unresolved sins that have maybe even gone on for generations that never have healed, and Wounds that you still carry. Maybe you've carried them into your marriage. Maybe you're projecting them now onto your children. Or maybe your marriage right now is in a difficult place. Um, there's tension and there's issues related to sins that are maybe minor or maybe are major. Maybe you're just stressed out about raising kids. Maybe you feel the dysfunction that can happen in almost every family. And if that's you tonight, then I'm really, really glad you're here. Because we're going to begin studying on Sunday nights until the Lord gives us a red light. The very, very first dysfunctional family in the Bible. Now, they're not the first dysfunctional family in the Bible. That would be actually the first family in the Bible. And we'll talk about them in a few minutes. But this is the first family of faith. The family of Abraham and the patriarchs. The family of Abraham and Sarah 
their son Isaac, his sons Jacob and Esau. And the Bible traces their story in the last half of the book of Genesis. And what you see over the four generations of this family story is you see every kind. Amy and I were talking about this on the way to church tonight. You see every kind of family dysfunction imaginable. You have affairs, plural. You have unexpected and unwanted children. You have children who grow up knowing that they're in second place. You have passive fathers. You have overly aggressive wives who are fighting for control. You have abuse. You have neglect. You have polygamy. I think we'll probably be in the clear on that one as a church. You have every conceivable family dysfunction imaginable. But in this family, here's the remarkable thing about them. Through all of this dysfunction, they are still being held together by the promises of God to them. They're not perfect people. In fact, they're people who, quite frankly, are very easy for us to judge. And yet, this is still a family of faith. This is still a family where God is at work. This is still a family where God is in the middle of all of the distrust and all of the abuse and all of the women who are being taken for granted and all of the men who are acting like creeps. In the middle of all of it, God is at work. And what I hope God does in our families and in our church family over the next few weeks and months is God just reminds us that for all of our dysfunction, He is at work. So let's start at the beginning tonight in Genesis chapter 12 where God forms this family. When we find the old married couple of Abraham and Sarah just beginning their life as a family of faith. Genesis chapter 12 and verse number 1. Genesis chapter 12 and verse number 1. Genesis chapter 12 and verse number 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. And Lot, that's his nephew, went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abideth forever. The book of Genesis is a book of beginnings. In fact, the title of the book of Genesis in Hebrew, Bereshit, means beginning. And you find in the very beginning of the book of Genesis, the very beginning of everything that is anything. Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the story of the Bible takes us all the way back to the beginning 
and it shows us the God who was there before the beginning. And the God who is before the beginning is going to begin everything. And in Genesis chapter 1, you see God beginning creation. God creates light. God creates land. God creates the sea. God creates day and night, the sun and the moon, the stars, the planets. God creates animal life, and eventually God creates people. But God does not just create human beings. God creates a family. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 29 say this. God says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Ladies, let me just say right there that if the dysfunction in your family is related to hunting and fishing, he can't help it. It's what God made him for. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God, notice this verse, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Have a family and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Again, just to make sure, ladies, and over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, if he's a duck hunter, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God takes a man and a woman and he puts them together. And he blesses them. And he says, in effect, to them, I want you to be fruitful now. I want you to flourish. And I want you to be a blessing to all of creation as I bless you. I want your family to be a blessing as you fill the world with little blessings, image bearers of me who will reflect my glory to my creation. God created the first family. But we also see in the book of Genesis not only the beginning of the family, a couple chapters later we see the beginning of sin, right? We see the beginning of a dysfunctional family. And as soon as sin begins in the human story, you find a family at odds with one another. You find a husband and wife who are blaming each other for their problems. You find shame entering into a marriage. You find a curse from God that's going to put the husband and wife sometimes in a constant state of conflict. His job is going to be stressful. There's going to be struggles over the power dynamics in the home. She's going to experience the agony of childbirth and of motherhood. And the next chapter, you find the very first sibling rivalry in Scripture between the very first siblings, Cain and Abel. And you find violence and murder in the first family. It's already dysfunctional, four chapters into the Bible. And then you find, as you continue on in Genesis, you find that the human family becomes so dysfunctional, so violent, so sinful. And a part of that is related to the sons of God, the sons of Seth, the marrying the daughters of Cain. It has something to do with the marriages and the families. And you find that dysfunction and the violence and the evil spreads until as we've been studying in Sunday school, God comes to judge the earth through the flood. But in judging the world, God saved who? And his family. God saved a family. And on the other side of the flood, God comes to Noah in Genesis chapter number 9 and look at the language here. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's the exact same language that God had given to Adam and Eve, right? You should very much see the story of Noah in Genesis as something of a recreation. Brother Ken said it this way. It's like God is rebooting planet earth, turning it off and turning it back on again. So that God comes to Noah again and says, I want your family to be blessed so that you will be a blessing in flourishing in the earth. And he tells Noah in the covenant in Genesis 9 how that will look. But if you keep reading in the book of Genesis, you find out that this family, 
Even though they step into the mud of a brand new world, they carry with them the dirt of their same old hearts, right? You find drunkenness in the father of the family. You find some sort of sin in the sons, one of the sons in the family. You find curses and division and separation and subservience and on and on and on as sin continues to go deeper into the human family. As you go on in Genesis, you find the human family becomes so corrupt in Genesis chapter 11 that they decide to build the Tower of Babel to make a name for themselves before God, probably to set themselves up as objects of worship, and God descends, right? That's how puny their efforts were. God had to come down to look at it. And God curses the families of the earth. And God takes the human family and he kind of fractures it, right? As he confuses the language. And one group is speaking Espanol and one group is oblying this and one group is saying that and nobody can understand anything and people start to go their separate ways. And in the aftershocks of Babel, God comes to a man by the name of Abram. And when God comes to Abram here in Genesis chapter 12, he makes a family. And he says, I want you, and I want your family to set out, and I am going to make of you a family and make out of your family a nation, and from that nation I am going to bless all the nations of the world. God says, I'm going to build a family. So tonight what I want to do is look at this family as a case study for the kind of family that God makes. What happens when God builds a family? Now, all throughout history, people have come together as families for any number of reasons. Uh, You, of course, know stories of of royalty, royal marriages that are marriages of political alignments. Sometimes people come together as families for those sorts of reasons. People come together for families to increase their property holdings. People come together for families for financial reasons. People come together in families for sexual attraction or for romance or any number of reasons. But a lot of times what we really don't think about is we really don't think about God's design for the family. A lot of times, in fact, we think more about our dysfunction as a family than how our family ought to function if it is a family designed the way God wants it to be. What happens when God forms a family? This text shows us that God forms a family by His grace. God forms a family as a blessing in order to bless others through obedience and worship. God forms a, bless, forms a family by blessing people to bless others through obedience and worship. So notice with me first in this passage of Scripture that when God builds a family, that family is held together by His promises. When God forms a family, that family is held together by His promises. God speaks in Genesis chapter 12 to Abram, and when God speaks, a new reality comes into existence. That's always the pattern of God in Genesis. God speaks and a new reality comes into being. God says, let there be light. And here, God comes to Abram and says, let there be a family. And he speaks specifically saying, Abram, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you great. And I am going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. Abram, I'm going to bless you to make you into a blessing. Now, we have the benefit of several thousands of years of history, and chapter after chapter of Scripture that gives us commentary on this passage. And we know that every promise God made to Abraham has been fulfilled in Jesus. We know that the way God blessed the nations, God blessed the families of the earth through Abraham, is by sending his great, 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 great whatever grandson, the Lord Jesus, into the world to save us from our sins. 
That's the way the New Testament interprets this passage. In Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes, Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, Know then that it is of faith, those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. You remember singing that growing up? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Well, I'm one of them, and so are you if you know Jesus. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. This is a gospel message that God preaches to Abraham. It's a gospel message that Abraham believes. So then those who are of faith, that's us, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Galatians chapter 3, verse 14, a little later in the chapter, Paul says, In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What Paul says is that Jesus is the blessing who has blessed us. And in blessing us, he has adopted us into this family that is blessed. He's made us part of the first family. Now think about what that means in the context of Genesis. That means those blessings that were promised to Adam and Eve, that were lost by Adam, have been restored in a greater way in Jesus. Do you realize today that Jesus has given you more than Adam lost for you? That means that the promises made to Noah are your promises. The promises that Abraham believed, those promises have been kept for your sake. The promises that Isaac will look for, the promise that Jacob will fight for, those promises are your promises. So when God comes to Abraham, what he does is he makes him a promise. And from this moment forward, all of Abraham's descendants, at their best and more often than not at their worst, would go forward believing this promise. This promise is what animates, defines, and drives their story as a family. Now, why does that matter for us and our families? Here's why it matters for you. Here's why it matters for your family. Here's why it matters for those of us that are married, for those of us that have children. It matters because the great blessing that God has given us as families is that our families would be built around the promises of God where we come together to make the promises of God to each other. Now, you do realize that families are units of people that have come together around promise, right? Think about it. When people get married, they come into church. Well, nobody gets married in churches anymore. Everybody gets married in barns. But when they, they used to come to church, I got married in church, right? And so you come together in church, and um, you know, you've got the bride and the groom and the pastor. And, and at some point, the pastor is going to have the couple make vows to one another. We don't really do that anymore either. Now everybody writes their own vows, and they just get up here and cry and blubber. I love you since the first time I met you and all that stuff. You can tell I don't care much for doing weddings as a pastor. Um, I'd rather do 10 funerals in one wedding. There are much less complaints. Um, But ideally, you come together at the wedding and the couple make vows. What is a vow? It's a promise. And they used to say, believe it or not, they used to say, I promise to honor, cherish. She used to say, I promise to obey. Could you imagine? They used to say things like, with all my worthly goods, I, I thee endow. With my body, I thee worship. Those are the promises that people used to make. And they came together understanding, or hopefully understanding, at least saying if they didn't understand, 
that our relationship as a married couple is not primarily about our happiness. It's not primarily about romantic feelings. It's not primarily about physical attraction. It's about living out our promises to one another for the rest of our lives and however long God might give us. And then typically out of those promises between a husband and a wife, you have children that arise. And when those children come, even though the children can't understand it, you're making promises to them. Like, I don't know that I've ever actually sat my kids down and promised that I'm going to make sure they've got plenty of food to eat. But that's the deal. That's the arrangement. I'm going to keep them safe. I'm going to provide for them. I'm going to make sure that they don't swallow the Lego. I'm going to do everything that I can to give them the best life possible. Why? Because a family is a unit of people that are organized around promises. But Christian families are supposed to be families, yes, where we make promises to one another, but where we reflect to one another the promises of God. Do you realize today that in your family, with your parents, with your children, with your spouse, Abraham's got his nephew with him, so let's just extend it out to the bigger picture. With our families, we are supposed to be the channels through which God keeps his promises to the people in our family. Think about it like this. God has promised my wife that he will love her. God has promised my wife that he will sacrifice himself and has sacrificed himself for her. God has promised my wife that one day he will present her as part of the body of Christ, faultless before him. And God has ordained through my relationship with her that I am supposed to help keep that promise in the way that I love her, in the way that I lead her. Do you realize that God has made promises to my children? Guys, listen up. Scylla, Asa, listen up. Did y'all know that the Bible says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made? And the Bible says that if you could count Jesus' thoughts towards you, they are more than all of the sand on all the seashores. That you are precious to him. And part of the way that God wants to show their preciousness to him is through my love for them. And what we are doing in our marriage by the grace of God, in our family by the grace of God, is all of us should want to show those promises to one another. We ought to be the means by which God keeps his promises to our family. Promises to forgive. Promises to protect. Promises to provide. Promises to cherish. And we have to believe that. And the reason you have to believe that tonight is because there will be moments in the life story of your family when that's all you've got. When the only thing that is going to keep you moving forward is the reality that you are sustained by God's promises to you. And that you are loving out of God's promises to you. That you are going forward in faith, trusting God's word to you. That your love for your spouse is not based on their behavior. Not based upon their appearance, not based upon what they can offer you, not based upon how they can make you happy, but based upon the fact that you have been loved with a love that will never quit. That you have been loved with a love that will never let you go. There are going to be times, I promise you, when your kids, some of y'all that aren't married and don't have kids, listen to me now. When your kids are going to yell at you because the waffles are yucky, even though three minutes ago they asked for the waffles. And in that moment, you have got to show them a patience that is supernatural. And you've got to show them grace. Or you can choose to show them law. But either way, you've got to let the Spirit of God lead you. But where does that come from? It comes from knowing that God has been patient with you. There are going to be times when you have to forgive. There are going to be times when there are more bills than you can pay. There are going to be times 
When parents let you down, there are going to be times as you deal with the weight of abuse. There are going to be times when you feel unwanted, times when you feel neglected, times when you feel unloved in your family, times when the dysfunction comes to your house. And when that happens, the fuel that's going to keep you moving forward in faith are the promises of God to you, knowing that you have the privilege, the sacred privilege, of carrying out the reality of God's promises in the life of your family. When God forms a family, they are held together by His promises. Second, I think this text shows us that when God forms a family, they're held together by obedience. God comes to Abram, and He says, Abram, it's time to pack up and go. Go to a land that I will show you. There's nothing in the world worse than moving, is there? Especially at 75, you've accumulated a lot of stuff. The Lord's helping us tonight, isn't he, Bill? But what does Abraham do in verse number 4? So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Is there any more perfect, more succinct description of faithful obedience that could ever be said about any of us? That we would go as the Lord told us. That's why in Galatians 3, Paul called Abram the father of the faithful. Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 8 says this about Abraham. That by faith he obeyed when he was called to go. By faith he obeyed. That's what obedience is. Obedience is faith in action. It is believing the promises of God and moving forward as if those promises are true. And I think today that we need to consider Abraham's obedience as it relates to our families. Abraham's obedience shaped the course of his family up until this day. You cannot understand the conflict in Israel between Israel and Palestine until you factor in Abraham's obedience. Think of that. How many billions of lives have been affected by one man saying, I will go wherever God says. And that puts on us the question, are we going to be obedient in our families? See, for many of us, the issue is about more than feelings. The issue is about more than romance. The issue is about more than attraction. For many of us, the issue is about obedience. It's about obedience. Will we obey what God has taught us about our families and how they look and how they work and how we live? Men The Bible says to you that if you are married, you are to love your wife the way Christ loved the church. Are you going to obey that? It's a matter of obedience or disobedience. Men, the Bible tells you that if you are a father, it is your sacred responsibility to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Are you going to obey that? Or are you going to disobey that? Ladies, the Bible tells you that it is your responsibility to live out the gentle submissiveness of Christ to his Father in the way that you submit to your husband. Are you going to obey that or disobey that? That never gets any amens. (laughs) Nobody likes that. Children! And and parents, y'all hang on. Two weeks, we're going to be on the fifth commandment on Sunday morning. (laughs) Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the earth. I cannot wait. Kelly, we might just bring all the kids down here and set them on the front row, and I'll just preach for two hours about obeying your parents. Children, 
The Bible says that it is your duty to obey and honor your parents. Obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Are you going to obey or are you going to disobey? Are you going to recognize? I know you're 15 and I know that your parents are, are just incompetent fools. That it's a wonder they've managed to make it to adulthood and keep a job and procreate. And you know everything. I know it's a burden for you. But do you recognize that mom and dad are the God-ordained authority in your life? And that you obey him by obeying them. Do you realize that? God commands us to forgive. Parents that have hurt us. A spouse that has cheated on us. Are we going to obey? When everything in us feels like we should leave. Are we going to obey God's command to stay? Are we going to obey in our families? Are we going to be obedient to what God has said? Or are we going to be disobedient? So much of our family dysfunction, you will see this next week in the life of Abraham. When everything goes south, so much of our family dysfunction comes down to simple disobedience. Simple disobedience. But you know the thing about Abraham is, that's really, really hard for me to wrap my mind around, is that when God starts a family, he starts with a 75-year-old. Now, no disrespect to our septuagenarians here in the church tonight, but you don't start a family when you're 75. You don't start a family when you're 65. You start a family when you're 25. Maybe 35, even 45 is pushing it, right? Why does God start with a 75-year-old? I mean, you know he's got aches and pains. You know Abram's at the point in his life when he can tell what the weather's going to be the next day because his joints hurt. He falls asleep during the middle of conversations. You know, my dad, I hope he's not watching tonight. My dad did that. We were home at Christmas. He and mom and I were talking, all of a sudden he's asleep. Abraham's older than that. Why 75? Can I give you two reasons that I think really are instructive? The first is this. If God is going to make a family out of Abram at 75, it has to be God who makes the family out of Abram at 75. In fact, the Bible has even said already in Genesis chapter 11 and verse number 30 that Sarah is barren. That she's not physically capable of having children. I don't know how they knew that then, but they knew. And maybe it's just her age, but they knew that she could not have children. And yet God comes to this circumstance that is impossible and says, this impossible situation is exactly where I want to interject my power. This impossible situation, this impossible family, this is exactly where I want to show my glory. Listen to how Paul explains this in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse number 16. The apostle Paul, talking about faith, he says, This is why salvation, justification, depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring. Not only to the inheritance of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God whom he believed, look at, how, look at how Paul analyzes this, who gives life to the dead 
and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, what Paul's saying is this, that our salvation is a matter of promise. It's not about my word to God. It's about God's word to me in Christ. And for God to save me, he's doing a miraculous work that is every bit as miraculous as what he did in Abraham. That is, he's bringing the dead to life. Now, Abraham was alive, yes. Sarah was alive. But when it came to any possibility of having children at 75 years old, the factory is closed. It's over. It's death. But what does God do? God does the impossible. He gives life to the dead. And Abraham's faith was believing that God gave life to the dead. Folks, our faith rests on the fact that God gives life to the dead. That three days after Jesus died, he rose again. That's the promise we believe. All right? Now, in this, here's what he says about Abraham's faith. Verse 18. In hope, he, Abraham, in hope, Abraham believed against hope. There was no hope, but Abraham believed against hope. That he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. Which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. That's Genesis 15. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I love that description of faith in the life of Abraham. That Abraham, he knew about his body. He knew about his age. He could count the candles on the birthday cake. Had to have a burn permit to light that thing every year. (laughs) He knew about Sarah's infertility. He knew about Sarah's age. But he believed against hope that God was able to do the impossible. And that God was able to do what he promised. You know why I love that? Because our messed up, screwed up, jacked up families are exactly like Abraham's. They're impossible. They won't be fixed. They're not going to be reconciled. They're not going to be better. They're not going to be easier unless God does the impossible. And if God does the impossible, y'all, then all things, all things are possible. Because to the one who believes, nothing shall be impossible, the Lord Jesus said. So here's what I'm going to challenge some of you to start believing and some of you to start praying right now. I'm going to start challenging you to believe and have hope against hope. I'm going to start challenging you to pray that God does the impossible. And pray that God changes hearts. And pray that God mends relationships. And pray that God undoes generations of sinfulness. And God does the impossible in your family. If you've got parents that are not believers, parents that were not responsible when they raised you, parents that still do not know God and still don't love you the way that you ought to be loved by your mom and dad, I want you to hope against hope. And I want you to pray like our God gives life to the dead. If you've got a husband at home who every single Sunday stays at home, rides his golf cart or lays in the bed instead of coming to worship with you, and you've prayed and you've asked and you've prayed and you've asked, believe against hope, hope against hope. Know that your God is able to raise the dead. If your marriage is stuck in a rut that you cannot get out of, I want you to believe and to hope against hope that your God is able to raise the dead. If your kids are driving you nuts or if they're prodigals away from home and away from God, hope against hope and believe that God is able to raise the dead. Our God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. And you have never prayed a prayer that your God is not powerful enough to answer and you've never prayed a prayer that your heavenly Father does not want to answer. His timing may be different. His timing in Abraham's story is all screwed up. But it's right. 
And I've told you before and I'll tell you again that God may take the long way, but He'll never take the wrong way. Pray against hope. Believe against hope. And know that there's nothing too hard for your God. And as we go forward over the next few weeks, you're going to see that in chapter after chapter. In the life of Abraham, in the life of Isaac, in the life of Jacob, nothing is too hard for him. Nothing is too hard for him. He can open the barren womb. He can heal a broken marriage. He can wrestle prodigals like Jacob down in the dirt until they confess their faith in him. There's nothing that he cannot do. Why 75? Because God wants to show his power in impossible situations, in impossible families. But why 75? Here's another good reason. Because it's never too late. It's never too late. At 75 years old, Abraham's lived his life. Now, he hasn't had any children, but he's clearly close to Lot, his nephew, maybe something of an adopted or proxy son. Abraham is probably already very wealthy. It seems that he's got a lot of possessions. He's, he's lived his life. And yet at 75 years old, he begins to really live. And I think we should learn from that, that no matter what stage we are at in our family, no matter what stage we are at in our life, it's never too late to step out in a journey of faithful obedience. It's never too late. Maybe you were not a believer when you raised your children. And maybe you look back and you have deep regret. And maybe you wish things would have been different. It's not too late. It's not too late to start where you are. Maybe you've got a previous marriage behind you. Where just things happened. Mistakes were made. Maybe they were yours. Maybe they were theirs. But you feel guilt and you feel shame over that. It's not too late to start right where you are. Maybe you haven't even got married yet. Maybe you think children are decades away. It's not too late to start where you are. In fact, it's the right time to start where you are. To say, by the grace of God, I'm going to obey Him in my home. I'm going to follow Him and I'm going to live a life of faith. When God forms a family, they're held together by obedience. But finally this evening, I point out to you that when God forms a family, they're held together through worship. Abram sets out. Departs, takes Lot with him. And we'll see the conflict that comes up in an extended family. We get to chapter 13. And Abraham worships. Verse number 7. The Lord appears to Abram and says, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Verse number 8. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. With Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. As Abraham travels, he builds altars. He stops to worship and reflect on God's blessings of him. Now, altars would have been nothing new or novel in the life of Abraham. He, God did not save Abraham out of atheism. Abraham believed in probably a multitude of gods and worshipped the, the pagan gods around him. But Abraham now is devoted to building his family around the worship of God. And I wanted to tell you tonight that you need to build your home around worship. And I really wanted to preach to you and say, you need to make sure that your home is dedicated to worship. But as I thought about that, the Lord wouldn't let me say that. Because the truth about our homes is, our homes are already built around worship. Every home, every family is built around worship. It's built around worshiping success. It's built around worshiping educational achievement. It's built around worshiping athletic competition. Built around worshiping 
any number of things. Just worshiping the day the kids get out of the house. I don't know. Worshiping a lot of things. But every one of our homes is a place of worship to someone or to something. It may be that your home has become a corrupted place of worship to you. And everyone in your home knows they have to bow to you or pay the price of your wrath. All of our homes are places of worship. God's design for our homes is that they be places where we worship Him. Where Jesus has the preeminence. Where our homes are filled with His glory and with His presence. So that we make much of Him in all things. And that is about so much more than just making sure we drag everybody to church three times a week. Yeah, you absolutely ought to do that. But you can read the Bible together every day. You can pray together every night. You can sing a song together. Talk about the blessings of God. Confess your sins one to another. Make sure that your home is built around Christ. Because that is what God is after. At the end of the Old Testament, when the family of Abraham has grown into a nation, and you can trace their dysfunction in myriad ways, in the failure and sin and disobedience and judgment and exile and restoration, the book of Malachi, Malachi the prophet comes with a very harsh word to the people of Israel, and he says, and this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altars with tears. Come to church and make a big show, in other words. You weep and groan because the Lord no longer regards your offering or accepts it with favor. But you say, why does he not? What's the problem with our worship anyway? Because the Lord was witnessed between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking in bringing together men and women? Godly offspring. God's goal was godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. A lot we could say about that, and we'll look at a lot of broken marriages going forward in Genesis. But what I want you to see there is that God's goal in bringing together a husband and a wife is his glory. It's his glory. And ideally, not always, we know there are circumstances that, that, that are different and unique. But God's design is that those parents raise their children for the glory of God. And that they are a godly offspring. What is God's goal in our families? Worship. Worship. Where our homes, like Abram's, become altars to the Lord. So, I would ask you tonight, is your home a house of worship? Is your home a house of worship? And I would encourage you in this. Say that if this is what God is after, if God is after godly homes, then you are not alone in this. I know sometimes it may feel that way. Especially if you're, good gracious, I need a trash can up here. I'm littering in the church house. It can feel like you are doing everything. If you're the spouse who's getting the kids ready and getting them to church and the other one's not with you. Or it can feel like if 
you're a widow or a widower and, and you're praying for your grandchildren that you don't have anybody pulling for you, you don't have anybody to help you, or it can feel like if you want to see the grandchildren walk with the Lord, but the children have their issues and they're not pursuing God, you feel like you're alone, don't you? You feel like, I'm pulling all the weight. That verse reminds me that you're not alone. That you're not pulling all the weight. That God's power, God's grace, and God's glory are committed to your family. God wants to bless your family to be a blessing to others. God is with you, but He wants you. He wants you to be blessed for obedience and for worship. So Gary and Shanda, can we have just, just a soft couple bars of something for an invitation? Let's stand together tonight, church. I feel like some of you maybe need to come to the Lord. And here's what I'll invite you to do. You may not be 75, or you might be. But maybe you've seen tonight that it is a good place for you to start where you are. As a single, as somebody who's engaged, as somebody who's newly married, as somebody who is anticipating children, as somebody who's raising small children, teenagers, whatever, wherever you are. And say, Lord, I want, I want my life and my home to be marked by obedience and worship. And I want to start tonight where I am. I want you to come. Others of you need to begin tonight praying for God to do the impossible in your family. Impossible forgiveness, impossible reconciliation, impossible salvation. God, I need you to do the impossible. I want you to come tonight and start praying, God, I want to see you do it. Maybe you see disobedience in your life, you need to repent of that. But all of us need to come tonight and say, God, make our house a house of worship to you. God, let our home be centered on Jesus because he's worthy. He's worthy. As they play, if you need to come, just slip out. And say, well, Brother Jesse, everybody will know my family's dysfunctional. Yeah, we know. So is mine. So is mine. But bring it to the Lord who forms families, who resurrects and who renews. Pour your heart out to him knowing that he answers and knowing that he's able.